0: So my name is Sam Reader. I am not on staff at Southeast. I am a lay leader within Men's Ministry. I serve in a few different capacities. I help make curriculum in some of our environments. I teach some at Man Challenge. Maybe you recognize me from that. If not, great to meet you, and hopefully can get to know one another over the next couple weeks. Uh, but like Christy teed up this week, we are going to start just basically, fundamentally, with the question: What is the Bible? So, hopefully, a couple of you uh, will be brave enough to maybe share what you wrote down, if you will. Anybody? Let's see it. Susie, what you got? I just said, translated down memories in God's word, how it began, what he wants from us. Hmm. I like that. Okay. Anybody else? Got some fancy terms in there, too. We'll we'll talk on those. That's good. Michael, what do you got? Uh, the 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 Man, I would have just said the written word of God, and that isn't as good of an answer as you all have given me, but if I'm just honest. So that's great. Thanks for putting forth the effort. Uh, but I, I think what we probably agree upon is it has something to do with God. There's some words. It's probably a book of some form. So that's a good place to start. Yes, ma'am. I yeah, absolutely. That is awesome. That is awesome. That's encouraging. That's awesome to hear. So uh, with with this idea of what is the Bible, I think before we can even dive into a discussion of getting rigid and saying, well, it's this many books here and this many books there, I think we have to kind of start fundamentally with this idea of revelation. So that's where we're going to start our conversation today in answering this question of what is the Bible. Uh, so when you hear the word revelation, uh, you may have some negative feelings that pop up, perhaps. Uh, a lot of times we'll think of the book of Revelation and uh, things weird, what is that about, and end of the world, gloom and doom, it can send you off the rails. But the where we get the word revelation essentially means to lift the veil, to to reveal, to remove a veil. So you may think traditionally in like a wedding, uh, a father of a bride would take her down the aisle, would lift back the veil and present her more fully to the groom or maybe sometimes at the end of the ceremony, the, the minister would say, you could lift back the veil and now you can kiss your bride. So there's this revealing of what's disclosed or undisclosed, uh, and that's this, this idea of revelation. So in J.I. Packer's famous book, Knowing God, he essentially says, the highest achievement any of us Christians or really any human could ever accomplish would be to know God. Like, if you know God, what could be a higher thing than that? And so when it comes to knowing someone, it's kind of funny if you think about it, but you have to put forth effort, and a lot of it depends on their side of the equation. So simply put, my wife and I have two yellow labs. One of them's name is Bella. She is obsessed with me. And if I want to know Bella, I just need to spend time with her. And after some time, I can get to know her intricacies, what she likes, what she doesn't like, what scares her, what... She's motivated by, it's pretty simple, getting to know a dog. My wife is a much more complex being than a dog. She doesn't have to disclose everything to me. She can keep secrets, is the way J.I. Packer explains it. So me knowing my wife depends a lot less on me and a lot more on her being available and revealing herself to me. So the more complex the being, the more dependent we are on them revealing themselves to us. So God as we seem to understand him, is invisible and infinite and knows everything. How in the world could I run him down, put him in a box, and figure him out? It's not going to happen. Rather, the other way around, he has to reveal himself to us. And thankfully, graciously, not only has he done that, he continues to do it. And so that is this idea of revelation. That for us to know God, he has to reveal himself. He has to lift back the veil for us. So let's talk about revelation just briefly. Uh, under the heading of revelation, there's really two different camps. There's general revelation. And a way to remember this would be to think of like the general population. There's ways in which God has revealed himself to all people in all times everywhere, generally. One of those would be through nature. The psalmist says in Psalm 19.1 that the heavens declare the glory of God. Paul echoes this in Romans chapter 1 and really takes it a step further. He he says that what can be known about God, his his divine qualities, his eternal attributes, that they have been clearly perceived in the things that are made since the beginning of the world. And he goes so far to say that anyone who would deny him, they're without excuse because it's so obvious. So nature itself testifies that there is a creator. So that's a form of general revelation. Another one would be sometimes called moral law, or an easy way for us to remember this is just to think of our conscience. Not everybody everywhere agrees on this, but there are some fundamental things morally that many of us across time, humans, agree on. You don't see this in the the rest of the animal kingdom, but you see in humans, like if if someone hands me my baby in labor and delivery and I chuck him out in the hallway, that's a terrible thing to do. Like, Almost every culture of man has agreed like rape and murder is awful. There is something ingrained within us in our design, morally speaking, that testifies to the designer of us, of our hearts. So those are forms of general revelation of who God is. Now the other camp would be specific revelation, or sometimes referred to as special revelation. So God works through events and moments reveal himself to specific individuals or specific people groups over time a good example of that you might think of is like Moses in the burning bush that's a pretty climactic moment where it seems like it's a one-on-one deal God reveals to him here's my plan here's what I care about here's what I want you to do here's where I'm sending you it's this big moment then when you fast forward in the story and you get all the way to the Red Sea the Red Sea parts And you see that God reveals himself to have authority over creation. He reveals himself to be a deliverer and saver of his his people as he brings them across the split Red Sea. But then you also see he reveals himself to be just as he collapses the waters on Pharaoh's armies as they're pursuing the people of God. So those are events or moments where God reveals more clearly the veil is lifted and he reveals himself Dreams, visions, visitations by angels that are recorded for us that we get, those are a lot more examples you could think of. But the big one I really am trying to draw to, the whole reason of talking about all this, is that this is divine revelation of God. This is a special, specific revelation. And I I think that's where we start our conversation. Now anyone who can read English could take this book from me and could read it and not necessarily know God. So we'll talk about that some next week, that there is a supernatural thing that happens when the Spirit of God works through his people as they go to this book to know him. But I think we have to start our conversation here because many of us grew up with this idea, maybe still hold this view, that this is a dusty old book that got passed down to us and we feel guilty for not spending time in it. Like a a lot of us, there's weird stories in here that don't make a lot of sense. We don't know what to do with it. And so we are are unsure. It causes debates and divisions. So we kind of push it aside and we ignore it. And my hope that in talking about Revelation to begin this whole thing is that it will give us a fresh lens to look at the word of God and to say, this is a way that he has intentionally lifted back the veil that we can know him. And hopefully that gives us a fresh appreciation for it. Now, I need to keep moving, but I have to mention (laughs) briefly, and this is unfair, but Jesus. Jesus is the number one best, most clear picture of God. Like Colossians says, he is the image of the invisible God. Hebrews says, he is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. Jesus told his followers, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus is the ultimate pulling back of the veil of God. But it's interesting, one of the main ways we know and learn about Jesus is through Scripture. So, let's keep moving. That's Revelation. I think just big picture today, though, our our reflection point in talking through this is to ask, how have you personally viewed the Revelation of God in and through Scripture? Maybe this is a brand new concept to you and you've never considered it. Or maybe this is right in line with what you've already thought and you wrote about as fast as you could for a minute. Either way, I pray that this gets our, our, our hearts stirred and our minds activated. So, that's Revelation. The next section we'll go to in uh, our discussion would be canon. Maybe you're familiar with that topic. Maybe you're not. For our purposes, we'll just say, for a long time, a lot of followers of God wrote a lot of things down. But not everything was bound in a book that we carry around today. So the things that were recorded and bound in what we call the Bible, we can say were canonized. They were put in the canon. Things that were not included are considered non-canonical. Not to use fancy terms, but it is what it is. So as we get into the the discussion of canon, there are uh, three different sections we're going to dive into. Uh, but what we were talking about when we say canon is the bound word of God. So physically what we have with us today. So the first section we'll jump into would be the Old Testament. For us that would be 39 books uh, that start with Genesis and run from Micah. And uh, for our purposes what I want to focus in on in terms of the Old Testament is that content wise our Old Testament is the same thing as the Hebrew Bible or the Tanakh. More formally, maybe you've heard Torah, that means law, it's really a section of the Tanakh, but for the Hebrew Bible and our Old Testament, content wise, it's the same thing. Now, if you go home to fact check me, which you should, and you start Googling, you're going to find some things and you're going to think, wait a second, what's going on? There's a different number of books, this looks arranged totally different, and that's okay. What we would call 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, they would just call Samuel Kings. What we call Ezra and the book of Nehemiah, they would call one scroll Ezra and Nehemiah. So the number's different. Also, the arrangement is different. We could spend a bunch of time talking about the way their Bible is arranged, and I think it's incredible. But for our purposes, what I think we need to hone in on is, essentially, our Old Testament is the Bible that Jesus grew up with. Like when when Jesus is in the temple as a child, reading scripture, he's reading what we call the Old Testament. The sermon series we've been in on Sunday mornings, when Jesus is being tempted and he runs to Scripture to fight the devil, he's quoting the Old Testament. When, when he's on the cross in his greatest moment of despair, he's quoting the Old Testament. And the reason I think that bears talking about in here is, if you're anything like me, you grew up with a, an unfair view of the Old Testament. That maybe God was angry and judgmental. There's a lot of violence there, and I'm not sure what to do with that. And in this day and age, the way sexual ethics change and the role of women change, the Old Testament feels real dated and weird. I don't know what to do with that. And so functionally, we tend to throw the baby out with the bathwater. And if you look at it, it's about two-thirds of our book is the Old Testament. And so maybe for you, if the Old Testament is something you're not a fan of or you have a low view on, I would just say, that was the Bible that Jesus grew up with and used. And maybe that should give us pause. And again, would maybe give us fresh eyes to revisit it. Um, to re-explore, to have the veil lifted, to know God through it. So that's the Old Testament. Next we'll talk about there is a period of time between what we call the Old and New Testament. That you could call the Intertestamental period. So, from the last events recorded in the Old Testament. Until the the first events recorded in the new. There's about a 400 year gap of time. Sometimes that's referred to as 400 years of silence. Because for much of the church. uh, Church history. We didn't include any of those writings. As being part of this canon that we're talking about. Now there's tons of things that were written. All through that period of time. But the belief is that those were not of the same par. As what we have in our books today. Now. There is a group or a section collection of those writings sometimes called the Apocrypha that the Roman Catholic Church does include in their Bible. Um, It's uh, maybe 1st and 2nd Maccabees might be something that sounds familiar if you grew up in that setting or Tobit is another one. Um, The reason that's worth talking about in here is statistically the vast majority of this church is somehow connected to the, the Catholic Church, either We grew up in it, or we married into it, or our neighbors are Catholics, or whatever. So it it bears uh, taking a moment to be clear that there is a section of those writings that they include, and they added around the 1500s into their Bible. The early church in the 1500 years leading up to that generally did not include them. They thought that they found historical and theological errors in those writings, and they thought. If there's errors, well, it can't be from God, and if it's not from God, we won't use it. Now, there's so much more we could say about all of that, but for our purposes today, just to be clear, I just want to say, when we say the Bible, we don't include that section of books uh, in this room, in this church, in the Protestant faith. We don't include uh, that collection of writings. The last section we'll talk about with the canon would be the New Testament. This is what most of us are most familiar with, this is the 27 books that start with Genesis and run through, uh, that start with Matthew and run through uh, Revelation. These collection of, of mostly letters uh, are what a lot of us grew up on hearing sermons from. Um, and honestly, of the three sections I just talked about, this is the most hotly debated in the scholarly world about what belongs and what doesn't. What got in that shouldn't have got in or what should have got in that didn't make the cut. That's where the debates are. And if I'm honest, I don't know about you all, let me know. At the water cooler at the pharmacy where I work, I don't hear people debating this. I generally don't hear people arguing about scholarly works on what belongs and what doesn't. But if you are like me, if you read something about, did you know that we don't know the exact author of the book of Hebrews? If you're like me, sometimes that can feel like the rug just got pulled out, like, wait a second, I don't know who wrote Hebrews, and it can feel like a house of cards. So I want to talk about this just for a moment, because I think there's likely, at least some of us in here, that that this topic matters. Um, when, When you look at what books made it into the New Testament, when you look at that big debate, there are a number of methods you can use to evaluate, and you'll come to various conclusions on that subject. I think the best method that I have found is from a guy named Dr. Michael Kruger, and he calls it the self-authenticating model. If you're into that, you can see me after. I'll point you towards his book. It's real helpful. Uh, but essentially, there are things about the, the New Testament letters that make them stand out from other things written at that time. Things like who wrote it, the, the, the apostle or the close companion of apostle who wrote it, um, whether the church early on received it corporately or not, And just fundamentally, if my wife wrote me a 10-page letter and a stranger wrote me a 10-page letter, I I should surely be able to tell the difference. There's something about my wife, and if I know her, that her her attributes come through what she writes, what she creates, what she does. So there's something, again, supernatural about if God is the author of it, it should testify to itself that it's from him. That's kind of the big picture. To summarize a huge debate that we could spend time on, I just want to make this one point today. That no man, no group of men, and no body of church gathering ultimately decided what books belong and don't. I would say the person who did that is God. Now that can sound like a cop-out. But I, I, I have full confidence that that is the correct answer. That God is the one who decided what books we have. And what we don't, J.I. Packer has a funny quote in his book on Revelation, essentially saying the church no more gave us the New Testament canon than Sir Isaac Newton gave us the law of gravity. The church recognized what God had already created, but it itself did not create it. So if this is something that you wrestle with, and maybe it's just a couple of us in here about who decided what books we got, I'm just simply going to say God is the one who chose what books we have. So Josh, on the next slide, we'll, we'll, we'll close out this section just talking about uh, what historically the church would, would say are doctrines about Scripture. And we've heard a few of these keywords come up. But this is kind of where we rest our case in saying that God is the one who gave us the Bible. Uh, so first off is that God is the ultimate author. Um, 2 Timothy 3.16 is a, a, probably the most commonly quoted verse on this that says that all Scripture is God-breathed that it came from God, the word we would use is inspiration, that God inspired this. That even though Moses is the one pinning Genesis, it is God's authorship through him, through the, by the Spirit that gives us that book. Now, how that works, I don't know. My brain explodes trying to understand that. But also, I have no problem saying that God is the one that led Israel, or led the Hebrews, out of Egypt. I don't say Moses saved them, I say God saved them. But surely Moses was the agent that God worked through to do many things. So similarly, I don't understand fully how he worked through human authors to write his, his word, but he did. And that's just the means by which God has done so many things, is working through imperfect man. Uh, also, if God is the one who ultimately is the author of it, and if God is perfect, then it also must be perfect. So that's where we get this idea of inerrancy, that it is without error. Uh, I included on your handout um, a, a text box, and that's a snippet directly from Southeast's Statement of Faith. And so it says that we believe God's inspired original writings of Scripture and those original writings were consequently without error. And so the safest way to talk about this accurately is to say that the original writings, the original manuscripts, are inerrant and without error here's why we say that most of us probably have had some if not a couple years of foreign language and you probably know if you if you take a a sentence in Spanish and translate it to English you have to reverse a few of the words and sometimes there's not exactly the same idea or even food or word or color in that other language and so you, you change the words and so if and we'll talk about translations next If if you have something that was written in Hebrew, and it got translated to Greek, and that got translated to Latin, and that got translated to old school Elizabethan English, thou shalt thou, and that gets translated into our modern day language, there's going to be a potential for error to occur in that, for sure. So the safest way to talk about this accurately is to say that the original manuscripts are without error. Now, does that then mean that this is full of, of, of problems and real world with holes? Absolutely not. And we'll talk about that more in a minute when we talk translations. But that is what we mean by inerrant. Uh, the word of God is authoritative. Hebrews 4 says it is living and active today. That it is effectual today in the life of the believer. And that God is the one who preserves his word. It's funny Dave taught today because I, I've heard probably over the years Dave Stone quote this word verse more than anyone else, is that the grass withers, the flowers fall, the word of the Lord stands forever. That's in Isaiah 40, and then Peter quotes that in the New Testament. If you wrestle with trusting that the Bible that we have is the right Bible, if you wrestle and being fearful that someone somewhere swooped in and changed something to to control us, I just simply want to encourage your heart to say that that whole deal rests a lot more on the power and authority of God than the power and authority of man. If God said it, his word doesn't return void. If he determined to give his, his word through revelation to his people, there isn't a thing we can do to stop him because he's God. So that's our section on uh, canon. Kind of our reflection point, we could say, is have you personally considered the links that God has gone through to preserve his word to his bride, the church, to you? Again, hopefully this is a lens shift for some of us that this isn't just a book that's confusing and dated and dusty and got passed down to me. But think about how many ruling and reigning regimes have controlled the world over the years. And yet the word of God, the number one selling book of all time, carries on. Think about what God himself has gone through to condescend to our level to lift back the veil and to make this available to his people that is a humbling thing sometimes we wrestle with finding motivation to get into this book that is motivating to me to think that god has done that for his people so that's our section on canon we'll we'll close our, our conversation this morning as we move into translations so any anyone in here fluent in hebrew aramaic or greek just curious me neither. Great. So, uh, as probably many of us know, but maybe not all of us, uh, the vast majority of the Bible was not written in English whatsoever. Uh, it was written in primarily Hebrew and Aramaic, uh, the New Testament, and Greek. You might have heard this fancy term, the Septuagint. That was a, a, the first Greek translation of the Old Testament. Um, as I mentioned a moment ago, as you go language to language to language, there is a potential for error. So most of the the great translations that we have today aren't a translation from one, from one, from one. They're translations from the original language, which is a beautiful thing. But early on in like the 1300s and the 1500s, when people were first trying to get this deal into English, there weren't scholars and experts like we have today. And now someone can make a translation and tweet about it and everyone has it, which is insane. But... If that is the case, that scripture was written in a language we don't speak, we had better find a good translation of the Bible for us to have the veil lifted and to know God. So let's talk about translations briefly just for a few minutes. Uh, This slide is one that you can find if you just Google search Bible translations, and I think it's a pretty helpful slide. There's a lot that look mostly like this, but generally speaking, Kind of what you get on the X and Y axis is you can either err on the side of more of a literal translation, which we'll say is word for word, or a more readable translation, which is more thought per thought. Now again, let's just use common sense. In some languages, a certain word doesn't translate well. That makes sense. So a translator has an option. I can either go as close to word for word as I can and then give it to you in the language you want, Or I can read it and try to understand what you're trying to say and then communicate that in an idea for idea or thought for thought translation and give that to you. It's kind of the two main ways to do that. And so when you go thought per thought, that tends to be a lot more readable and sounds a lot better. So uh, the NIV, the New International Version, is kind of the one I point people to if you're looking more for a more readable text. That is what I used for most of my life. That's what we used a lot in this church. That's what my wife uses. Uh, The NIV is a great translation, and it's very much a thought-per-thought translation of the original text. The other side of that spectrum would be word-for-word. So an example of that would be the ESV. That's the English Standard Version. That's what I primarily use myself now. When my wife and I get together in bed and we read out loud together, her sounds so much better than mine that it's almost frustrating. I'm like, why am I using this again? But for me personally, when I read from the ESV, it forces me to slow down because it's not as smooth of a thought. And I have to think about, now, what what is James trying to say here? Or that word doesn't really land well for me. I wonder what he means by that. And so it, for me personally, it forces me to go back and study more. Now, for my wife, it bogs her down. And she's like, then I feel like I'm distracted and I've lost the whole of what we were trying to read in the first place. So my, my point for us in here is kind of twofold. One, there's not a perfect translation, and you should probably use multiple. <laughs> That's what I do when I prepare to teach. I'll read from many. But two, and this is maybe where we should really focus in individually, why do you have the translation you have? For, for some of us, it was a gift at our baptism or at our confirmation or it was the one that was on sale Or it was the one with the pretty blue binding. And there's nothing wrong with any of those things. Absolutely not. But to engage our minds over the next month, why do you have the translation that you have? Is that what's best for you? Now, we've said readable, word for word, thought for thought. There is something else we should talk about too. There's another spectrum nowadays that if you go to the far right, now there's even paraphrase. So we've heard this from this church quite a bit over the past year plus. If you've heard from the Message Bible, that is a paraphrase. That is not a translation of the Bible. It is a paraphrase. So a paraphrase, right? If, if I were to tell you a story that takes 10 minutes, you might paraphrase it down to three sentences to kind of get the overall gist. Now as we talked about, if you go from language to language to language to language, your potential for error in missing what God originally said gets higher. Well, if we're paraphrasing, we could totally change massive chunks of this. So, to be clear, I am not saying the Message Bible is evil or bad. If you like it, continue to use it. But what I am saying is it should never be our primary text. We can definitely use it in addition to, and especially since our church has gone online and reaches new cultures where people speak differently, a paraphrased version of a text is super helpful evangelistically. To share general principles. But if God took the time to reveal himself through his word to his people. And preserve that word over time and give it to us. If we know better we should do everything we can to meet him. And that as close as we can to that original text. So that's the message. But the, the reflection on this would then be uh, which translation is best for you. So hopefully this week you'll spend some time looking at that and considering that if you haven't already. So then, lastly, what is next? Here's what, what we'll say. There are some homework questions that probably will take five minutes, maybe ten if you're really, really in-depth thinking. The hope is that that will engage your mind as you think through some of these things. And like Christy said, next week we'll start off by talking through some of those as a class. But the hope is that this isn't just for us to get puffed up with knowledge and to be able to Hey, did you know that the 400-year period was, who cares about that? Like the most important thing we can do is to know God and to be the people he's calling us to be and to love and encourage what we've just talked about out in the big house this morning, if you're at 9 a.m., to be the body of believers, to encourage one another in and through that. Now that said, some of the topics that I touched on are massive topics that I breezed through. If you have questions about that, let's talk about it. And if, if they're in-depth questions, we can even record some podcasts and share them as this class grows with others. Uh, but if you have questions, uh, if you'll, we'll, we'll throw it up in a minute. You can shoot those questions into Josh. Uh, we'll put his email up, and we can, um, we'll, we'll gather all of those together. And whether we do it week by week or at the end, we'll, we'll answer as many of those as we can. Uh, I also included some books that I read in preparation for this and that I revisited. They're printed on your handout. Um, some JI Packer stuff and uh, yeah, so with the last few minutes, we're done at eleven forty-five. So you've got fifteen minutes. I would encourage you at your tables to just maybe talk through some of these things, like those reflection questions. Like, have you ever considered the Bible as revelation? Is that a new thought to you? What translation is best for you? Um, you can unpack those. You could look at some of the homework questions or. Just get to know one another. Either way, that's fine. So you'll have that going. Uh, We'll be dismissed in 15 minutes. I won't pop back up. So whenever you need to go, you're ready to roll. And then we'll see you back next week. Thanks for your time. Appreciate y'all.